Thank you guys for listening to the George Reister podcast. This podcast is about faith, family, fatherhood, food, friendship, and sports, where all those things collide and intersect. Make sure that you guys share the podcast with a friend, tell a friend about the podcast, and also leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to get in touch with us, show ideas, people, guests, any of that, or feedback, send it to GWpodcast at unafraidshow.com. That's GWpodcast at unafraidshow.com or find it on Twitter as well. On this episode, I'm super excited to announce we have Dominic Foxworth, seven-year NFL veteran. This dude breaks down, is open, honest, and transparent with us. He talks about his faith, his relationship with his family, his fatherhood, and how friendship is very important and vital in his life. Hope you guys enjoy the conversation. We are graced today with Dominic Foxworth, seven-year NFL veteran, writer for the Undefeated and he's the host of The Morning Roast on ESPN Radio with Clinton Yates and Mina Kimes. You've seen him on First Take, Golik and Wingo, Dan Lebetard's show, Brian Bodwell, the Bill Barnwell Show podcast, and a bunch of other places as well. Fox, man, happy to have you with us today. So happy to be here, man. Thanks. Here we talk about faith, family, fatherhood, food, friendship and sports this is what the george reister podcast is about we'll we'll start with what people know you for the most you went to maryland third round pick but the nfl that's where we will start because you were the the youngest person to be on the nfl pa players association executive committee and you were elected president of the NFL, NFLPA in 2012 without any opposition. So what the collective bargaining agreement is up now, they're, they're trying to negotiate to prevent a lockout after this upcoming season or even a strike, however you want to call it. So what did you think of the initial proposal to the PA from right. the NFL? Yeah, so I mean, the the proposal that the PA ended up presenting to the executive committee and, and presenting to the players, I think was interesting because I remember when we were negotiating, they tried to, to throw 18 games at us. And I don't know if they were serious or they wanted it, but we kind of shut that down immediately. And then it was off the table. But it was obviously something that was important to them. And they came back with 17 this time and put that on the proposal. And that jumped out to me. I think that was a bit distracting from all the other stuff because I think there are some really impressive gains for the players, namely the the increase in revenue. We're in a, a place where all the major sports unions have taken steps back financially in the last, I don't know, decade plus. None of them are really getting more percentage of the of the revenue. The, all the players have taken a step back, but this would represent the first time that a union has taken some money back in a decade plus. I think that's impressive. And then there's some changes to to lifestyle stuff, giving the guys more time off and, and reducing the workload of practice. But none of that matters if that 17th game is as dangerous as some of us think it is. And there's no way to know necessarily because it's not like you can run some study that could let you know what the impact of adding an extra regular season game on the end of the season. So it's, I mean, I guess only time will tell if they do 
go to a 17 game season. But I think it's interesting and kind of scary, frankly, because we don't fully understand how bad football is for our brains and bodies yet. So adding another game is concerning, I think. Yeah, so you mentioned the revenue. So right now the players are getting about 47% of the revenue. And with the new CBA, it would be either 48% or 48.5%. And when you talk to people who aren't necessarily in the know, or even you talk to current players who I'm close with some of the guys who are still who are playing now, they say uh well well why aren't we getting 50%? Like we should we're doing we're doing the yeah. we are the product. There is no game without us. We should have 50%. Like I, when you are you sat in that room negotiating yeah. and yeah. some of the players say, "Well, why why do we have to get give up anything? Everybody says that you, you got to give and take in a negotiation." So what is it like in that room? Well, I mean, I think that people have an idea of negotiations and they think that it's like on TV and that you can you can like talk your way into something or kind of trick your opponent or corner them because you won the argument. That's just not how it works in negotiations. Everything has a price. And I'm sure many people who are listening to this can resonate and hearing your mom or dad tell you that nothing in life is free. I know my parents told me that. I think that's what happens in the negotiations is you have to pay for everything and either in this case, you want to get a gain in revenue percentage, then you pay for it with seventeenth game with a seventeenth game. If you're not interested in getting a seventeenth game, but you still want to get some revenue gain, then you're gonna to have to pay for it with, uh, withstanding a lockout or skipping a season and going on strike. Like there are costs. You're not gonna be able to trick the NFL owners into giving you something without you paying that price. And that price is either gonna be some sort of trade off, or it's going to be some uh some pain that you're going to have to endure that's what it boils down to at the end of the day is the league must be must credibly believe that you are willing to walk over the cliffs and and put the future of the nfl in jeopardy uh by not showing up and i think that's the thing where we miss out when we talk when players are talking about their issues with the deal or with any cba negotiations or start comparing how much money they make to other sports we can get 50 percent. we can get 60 percent might even be able to get 75%, but there is a cost for getting all that. And if you're not willing to endure that price, then, then I don't know what to tell you. You have to figure out some other sort of Jedi mind trick to trick the owners into being comfortable with handing over billions of dollars without you taking it from them or giving them something that they want in return. Yeah, I think that there's this misconception that some younger players have in particular that you can just take what you want because you are the players that you can just demand it. And it just doesn't that like I've never I've been in part of negotiations in other businesses and never seen anything work like that. So but 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 I want you to talk about like what do the owners because I remember hearing some things um well, from the from from the 2011 negotiations that you were a part of, mm-hmm. where you had some owners saying things like, you know, former players hold no no value, and you just talked yeah. about what whether it's a strike or a lockout, and well, whether players are willing to to strike. And I'm saying, like, yeah, are you willing to do this for benefits that you may never get? And it's 1,700 right. guys. How do you get them on the same page, and how do you deal with that as the president of the PA? Right. I mean, it's tough to get everybody on the same page. And I do think that the 
understanding the owners is a difficult thing to do because they're all very different. And I think that they feel differently about different players and they feel differently about the players at different times. But they, at the end of the day, I think it's important to understand that they aren't your friends and they don't care about you any any further than they care about what you can do for them. So I think that's very true. You can find several quotes from owners saying similar things to what you said. And I think as soon as we get that through our head is that this is more like a business than it's like a team, <laughs> you know, like the people who you feel like you're on a team with are your teammates and that's it. So uh, once players understand that, and I think most players, frankly, do understand it, but sometimes star players and quarterbacks in particular sometimes think that they hold some special place and maybe they do. But at the end of the day, if you have no value to, to the league or to the team owners anymore, then they have no use for you. So I think when it comes down to it, that's whatever emotional connection you may think that you have to a city or to a team or to a particular or, uh, individual and organization. It doesn't seem to carry any weight when it comes to negotiations and whatever touchdowns you've thrown or interceptions you have or big tackles you've had that carries no weight in the negotiation. No one is giving you anything unless you are willing to take it. The 49ers let Joe Montana, they traded Joe Montana. Yeah. And yeah. the Patriots didn't want, don't want to pay Tom Brady what he necessarily wants, despite the six Super Bowls. So this lets you know that this is in, like, that this is a business. So if you were, like, I, I heard you talk about it on on a video where you talked about the internal struggle with being the PA president or on the executive committee trying to balance what is, you know, best for every player. What was that a real internal struggle and how did how was that for you? Yeah, I mean it absolutely is a, a tough decision to make because every uh CBA proposal has different impacts on different players because it's so, so vast. Like the, the the differences between young players who's a third round pick and a young player who's a first round pick or a guy who's in his eighth year or a guy who's in his 15th year. And their interests are so different and things that are important to them and the things that will impact them are so different. So there could be CBA negotiations. One example that I, I, I like to use is like the franchise tag. So lots of star players in all players, frankly, don't really like the franchise tag, but it kind of affects in a way that it limits the negotiating leverage for a star player, which probably reduces how much money he can make, which then goes back into the salary cap. And as long as there's a minimum spend, with the, which there is, that money then has to go to other guys who are free agents. And so a lot of mid-tier guys might get their salaries boosted as a result indirectly of the salary cap. So that's one way to think about how one thing could could appear to be a terrible thing for the players, but actually by and large, that probably uh, distributes a more, some of the money that would go to top tier quarterbacks. It ends up going to kind of mid-tier starters who hit free agency. So when you think about that, and then you think about how the rookie pay has changed, like there are different things that happen to, that happen at different times. Some guy who's getting towards the end of his career might be concerned with more concern with uh, post-career healthcare. And it's just trying to understand how to weigh all that stuff and what to fight for and what not to fight for. And then at the end of the day, when the, the deal is laying on the table, trying to figure out if you feel that you feel comfortable that you have tried your best and it's not gonna get any better and you've met all the needs or as many of the needs of the players as you can 
without um, shorting any one of them. So I think it's a tough decision because it, it not only impacts you, it impacts your teammates, it impacts players who are not even in the league yet, and it impacts families and their livelihood. So like I've been fortunate and a lot of people I know have been fortunate enough to play long enough to kind of redirect the fortunes of my immediate and and to in some degree my extended family and the decision that you make in that cba negotiations like it has that impact on people's lives and their families so having that weighing on you when you're just trying to decide what to direction to push is a real heavy weight so looking back on that 2011 negotiations because players are always split about the NFL players association. Some people hate it. Some people think it's, yeah. it's weak. Some people, you, you know, but I, I am on the other side because I've been a part of the lot of programs who, and helped uh, f formulate some things that created the trust and all of that. So I believe in what it is. There are obviously some things that I think need to be different, but at the same time, but by and large, I th believe they're doing great things. So looking back on 2011, that negotiation, because I heard that you say that you would have voted no initially, but right. do you think it was the best deal possible? And like, what differently would yeah. you have done in that negotiation? Yeah, I think it was, we ended up, as we were preparing for negotiations, if you remember, Gene Upshaw died. And so we were in yep. mid preparation, the executive director of the union died. And so we had to kind of stop negotiations and scramble to find um, a new executive director. And then we hired D. Smith. We went through the negotiations uh, with a, a brand new executive director. And I, I think all that considered, we ended up in a good place. I argued at the time with uh, the executive committee that we should uh, suggest to the players to reject the deal. And if we would have done that, we would have entered a lockout. And I think, honestly, it was a bit of ego and bravado that was pushing me because what we were talking about and I was probably in in my ear knowing how players talk bad about the union it's like all right well this is our chance to change the way they talk about the union and to actually uh get some real big like monumental change and I knew that the only way to do that was to go through a lockout and to show the owners that we were ready to withstand whatever pain that came with it but after we kind of talked about it, I think the rest of the executive committee kind of made it clear that they didn't believe that the players were willing to do that and in position to do that. So that's one of the things that I find frustrating when players do criticize uh, the union and the, the salary cap and the things that the unions negotiated for is we can get more, but you have to be willing to sacrifice and likely not be the one who benefits from the sacrifices made. That's how we got free agency through a lot, a series of long sacrifices by guys who frankly ended up out of the league before they were able to capitalize on it. So the guys who are talking big game, I just want them to keep that same energy when it comes down and, and they're in this position now. So right now there's a lot of guys out there talking tough about how they want to say no to this deal. And that's fine. I'm on board with that, but make sure they keep that same energy when it comes around time next year, when they're actually going to have to miss games and uh, live through a lockout or a strike or something to get the things that they feel they deserve. A hundred percent, because yes, a lot of people talk that game, but when it comes to missing them checks, yeah. when it comes to Which missing, I understand. I understand. So yeah. just be quiet. I, I can, I can understand. You don't want to miss them checks. I don't want to miss my checks neither. But then you got to be quiet when you're not happy with how the deal is, has uh, turned out.
I 100% agree. So with with this new deal, would you say yes or would you say no? I think or, I would, or, or would probably, it just de- yeah. de- depend on the gauge of whether you thought players were willing to stand that pain? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's what it always depends on. Um, I, it's hard for me to, to be able to, to decide whether I think they are or not since I'm not as involved. But I think the bird in the hand is the deal that's available right now. And I would probably go ahead and sign that deal because there's no guarantee that the deal is going to get better. This deal is not awful. There's no guarantee that the deal is going to get better. And there's a slightly higher probability that you're going to enter a war of attrition against uh, the owners who are pretty well positioned to to win that war. Yeah, I I would initially when I saw it, I said I would say yes to it. I would. But in, in hindsight, I probably would say no and go back to the table and try to get a little bit more. And the only reason is because the way it kind of played out publicly was that it yeah. seemed like this harmonious thing and it felt too right. easy. And when right. something feels too easy, it makes people feel like they might be getting cheated. So yeah. I, I think that they didn't play it out publicly well enough to where it seemed as seemed more contentious and seemed like this was hard to get right. done and all of that, which would have, I think, assisted in getting the deal signed. You're right. You're probably, you're absolutely right. I think the communication on this stuff was, was failed. All the players that I've talked to, that was their biggest complaint. But I think you're right about the way that it, the way that it felt, but their biggest complaint was they felt like it was kind of sprung on them and they were surprised that all this negotiation was happening. And then all of a sudden they were like, here's the last deal, take it or leave it when there was no real hard um, deadline. So I, I, I think you're yeah. probably right that in order to have a good deal, the contents of the deal matter less than the way the players feel about it. And right now they aren't happy about it. So you have to figure out For a way sure. to get back and get some more and reposition it in a way that the guys are happy. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, but truthfully it's, it's in the best interest of the league and the players to have the yeah, deal everybody. done before the TV deals get negotiated um, or the streaming deals or whatever they end up doing. But you mentioned about keeping that same energy and, and you write for the undefeated, you write a b- bunch of great pieces, do uh, interviews, you do videos, all these things. And when I say keep that same energy, I'm talking about when people over the last few years have talked, talked about politics and sports. And I'm like, they're like, keep politics out of sports. But I'm like, politics has always been a part of sports. Like when you go back to, you know, Jesse Owens going go, going to go to Germany and 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 run in, in front in front of Hitler and win as a black man. Like you you, you look at, you know, the um the what was it, 68 Olympics in Mexico City. Like uh when the US when they threatened to um boycott the Olympics, all of these things. Like I'm just sitting here like politics has always been involved with sports. Like how can people say, keep it out? I just think it's just a convenient excuse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the uh, Howard Bryant wrote a book called the heritage that came out in 2018 that I read. That's pretty much exactly about this and goes through uh, the history of politics and sports or, or race and sports and, all that stuff, and it suggests that it is kind of a, a legacy that players have carried and and has been re kind of dropped for a period 
a, a stretch there in the 90s and players like Kaepernick have picked it back up today. And I, I think it's absolutely right. And he points out in that book, uh, among the political things that we have allowed in sports was after 9-11, like sports became all about celebrating America and and um, standing up around the flag and 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 that stuff like helped to propel passages of laws and like the Patriot Act and all these things. Like so, politics isn't sports. Politics and race isn't everything. And I uh, I think people are uncomfortable with it, or some people are comfortable with with it when the views that they have or, or the views that are contrary to ones that they hold are kind of put in front of them, and they have to be forced to reckon with it. And that's that's the part that is is interesting. You you want your or a lot of people want their opinions and things they believe in and the things that they hold dear to be celebrated, but not anyone else's and to have attention drawn to them. Yeah. And I've always like seen people say, Oh, Oh, you're, you're just an athlete. You need to be quiet. What, what do you know? But then people like, like you, 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 you have an MBA from Harvard. So <laughs> I, I would say in terms of the education scale on a lot of people who uh, and, and granted, degrees don't always necessarily right. equate to intelligence. However, it just means that you jump through the uh, hoops and you show the commitment right. and you've learned things. But how does that play into it for, for you, a man with a degree from Harvard, when when people are telling athletes who others have MBAs and are well-educated, they tell them to shut up and dribble? Yeah, I mean, it's it's... Not much of a surprise. I mean, it's frustrating and disappointing, but it's not much of a surprise. I think you get accustomed to people telling everybody to, especially being a black man, like it's people have ideas of exactly where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do. And then you put on top of it that I'm an athlete for much of my life, like that fits neatly into a category that I think a lot of people are comfortable with. And when you step outside of those categories, it really bothers people. So I'm not surprised by it or, or, put off by like it's a thing that i've become accustomed to working around and working through so i i fully expected that thing and i don't expect it to be the last time that people tell athletes or or anybody frankly to kind of stay in their lane when i mean this is our lane it's a lane we live where being black in america is something that's important to us i mean it's, it's not that it's important it, it is us and and the things that Im impact us and people like us is important to us yeah, but then they tell you, uh, Fox, sports is a meritocracy. Coaches are, are hired based upon merit and qualifications. Black quarterbacks are, are given the same opportunity as white quarterbacks because they want to win games and coordinators and all that stuff. The owners are just hiring the best people possible, even though 70 percent of the NFL is 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 black. But then it's so hard for black coaches to get a head, head coaching jobs. But aren't these the best people for the job, though, Fox? I mean, I learned a long time ago that that there's a certain base level of understanding that someone has to have before it's even worth engaging in an argument or a debate with them. And if that's the starting point, like uh, we're never going to get anywhere. You can't argue with fools if if they see a world that's that way and they sincerely believe that the effort that it's going to take me. And it's also not my job, you know, like it's not my job to educate fools. Like uh, the effort that it will take for me to get them just to like zero before we can then talk about real issues is just 
more than uh, I have for them at this point. It's not my fault that they are ignorant and undereducated and obtuse to to the surroundings of the world, to the world that surrounds them. I I can't do anything about them. Yeah, because it, it's a it's a it's hard for me to understand how people don't see it's a real thing because if seventy percent of the league is is black, and then. Granted, everybody can't be a teacher, a leader, and coach football and all of these things. So, but some of them can. So if more of them play it, like how does that not translate into a lot of qualified coaches? And I always say that that owners, that I think that there's a different segment of owners. I think that, yes, there is some underlying racism in some things, but then some things are just biased. When you, 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 you know, they like people who have the same common shared experience when they're going to trust them with their billion dollar franchise instead of kind of trying to, I mean, cause if they were looking to hire people in their companies, they would try to find the best, most qualified people. But in the NFL, they're looking for these intangibles that, that can't be qualified. I mean, it's not like you have to jump through a certain amount of hoops. Like, if they were going to hire a CEO, like these billionaire owners were going to hire a CEO in their company, they wouldn't hire the guy out of the mailroom, kind of like a special teams coach. They would hire, even though John Harbaugh has been successful, um, they would hire, you know, somebody who's been in upper management, all of these things. It just doesn't work that way in sports. And and it's hard for me to understand why people can't see that. Yeah, no, I mean, they don't want to see it. <laughs> so, like, I think that it's, I applaud anyone who's willing to try to help people who don't want to see it, see it. But I just uh, learned a while ago that it's not worth my time or effort. And I, I don't wish to convince people who don't want to see it. If I lay out the argument in the way that you did or lay out the evidence in the way that you did or in whichever way I I do, and then they come up and say, and still don't believe it, then I'm good. I'm going to move on because I, I they clearly don't want to hear it. If they don't want to hear it, they're not going to hear it. So that's, that's all I can do. I think that it's important for people who are in decision-making positions to to be honest with themselves about the biases that they have. But the rest of these people out here on Twitter and, and the world at large who refuse to, to believe the uh, experience that we all see, and I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell them. I'm not going well, how to stress myself out about how it. How do you think you identify that bias and do something else to try to, um, you know, to to give the quote-unquote best candidate an opportunity when you don't necessarily understand everything about that candidate? No, I think that the, the thing you talk about is something that I brought up over the last kind of hiring cycle is the unconscious or conscious bias. I'm not sure what it is of the team owners or whoever's making the decisions on GM and head coach hires. I think that they they either know or they don't know why they feel so comfortable around this particular guy. And it's probably because it's something about them that, that reminds them of themselves. And I think one of the things that I proposed was that they got they have to put in writing like the reasons why they uh interview chose to interview all the candidates that they chose to interview and then put in writing the reasons why they hired the one they hired and the reasons why they didn't hire the ones that they didn't hire because i think that that forces them to to uh be honest about 
their reasoning. They can't just say, like, you can't put in writing, uh, I had a feeling. Yep. I felt like I could trust this guy. You have to be explicit about what's happening and why you're hiring somebody or why you're rejecting somebody. And I think that forces them to, to be a little more honest than they normally would. I agree. It'll be an exercise in that, that, that. That's a good exercise for people just in regular life, not to just say, oh, I'm going to go off the, right. the feeling. But now on to the faith, because um, I know that we talked about that, that your that you were in church this last Sunday, but your but your family I was, yeah. but your family is is regularly there with without Fox. Why? Because I noticed that in families that I've seen that either you know kind of everybody goes or nobody kind of kind of goes. Like how big a faith part does faith play in in your life and in your family's life? Yeah, so my kids are fairly young, like nine, seven, and four. And the seven-year-old and and the nine-year-old go to uh, Sunday school that happens to be on a Tuesday, but they go every week. And my wife grew up Catholic, and her parents go to Mass every week, and my wife goes to Mass every week, and it's important to her. And I, I certainly agree with a lot of the things that the church teaches, and I, I disagree with a lot of the interpretations of the bible but it's not a problem that i have it's something that i'm fine with and my wife goes and the kids don't go every sunday but um we all went this like this past sunday and i'm not like opposed to it i don't want to stand in the way of her going or my kids being uh being influenced by it but uh it's also not something though i went to baptist church growing up it's not something that has become uh important like a integral part of my life and i've managed to find meaning and and know right from wrong and be a decent responsible uh contributing adult and feel satisfied and like all the things that i feel like people say they find in religion like i, I found that outside of religion and i don't begrudge anyone who finds it in religion it's just not something that i feel like i've needed up until this point but i'm who knows what the future holds? Maybe I will get sucked back in. Sucks sounds like yeah, that. Maybe I'll get drawn <laughs> back in, but <laughs> but uh, it's just it hasn't been a part of my life, and it's not something that I feel. I don't feel like some void that needs to be filled. So, how do you find your barometer for right and wrong and all of that? Because we because we live in a day and age, especially that people you know, that they just go off of how, how they feel, what they think. And yes, your, your, your life has been very responsible and all that, but some other people, like you were saying, they need that gauge and barometer. Like where was yours kind of fine tuned at? Yeah, I don't know. I honestly, I think, um, I mentioned I went to church growing up, but I, I think that you don't need church. You don't need Bible to, uh, to, know when something is right or wrong necessarily just the same way that you don't need laws to know whether something is right or wrong the laws tell you whether something is illegal or not it doesn't tell you there are plenty of things that are legal that we all would agree are wrong and there are plenty of things uh that are illegal that we would not be offended by necessarily so i i think um the bible serves a similar purpose it gives guidance but I don't need to look in the Bible to like know that like infidelity is not something that uh, I want to participate in. And like uh, we're in a, a modern world where 
infidelity is probably not even the word that I should use because there are some people who have relationships that they are comfortable with being open. And I'm not going to tell them that's wrong. That's what they want to do. And that makes them happy. And I think sex in general is an interesting place to talk about religion because I think the churches in general are coming around on views of homosexuality. But it's another thing that it's just like, I don't have any problem with homosexuality. And I I know the church would have told me or will still tell me. I, I know that, that that's a sin and that's unacceptable. And those are things that just don't offend me. And I, I, I feel like the Bible and church, not just the Bible, all religions probably act as some good um, guide rails for for all of us, but it's not something that we need and it's not it's not something that everyone needs and it's not an kind of end all be all on what is right or wrong necessarily. See, I I am of the other opinion. Like just because it was it's always been such an integral part of my life and my family and like and it's always like I'm a big like Proverbs reader. Like it is like because I've always felt that 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 the lessons in Proverbs were as I've gotten older, seeing them like they were all right there. <laughs> and and some of them I skipped over or didn't understand or didn't want to believe when when I was younger. So it's like I, I've always looked at it as like what some somebody told me, when, you, you know, when you're in church, when you're younger, they're like Bible basic instructions b- before leaving leaving Earth. And granted, there are some things that have changed, you know, some uh, throughout throughout the times, because during those certain times, they didn't have necessarily the same technology, same all of this. So they necessarily did some things differently. But for me, I just like that's where I find my barometer and my gauge. But I don't begrudge people like you who who have a difference of. Uh, opinion but i think a lot of times what i've seen is is that some is that a lot of people do have that void and they don't have that you know kind of that that north star for right and wrong and how to gauge you know behavior and situations for their own life and 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 set boundaries that's why why i started i'm sorry no no no, i was saying saying that's why i started by saying that i don't that's why i started by saying i don't begrudge anybody like i know that people need it i think one thing that's like a, a kind of bothersome to me is people who are like not religious and they almost are evangelical about their anti-religion. And that that thing is what <laughs> everyone wants to tell you how how wrong church is or how um, how evil the Bible is. Like you come across those people who who are angry at religion that's not me like i recognize what purpose it serves and i think it's a noble purpose by and large and i think plenty of people get hold of of religious scripture be it the bible the quran or any other thing and they and they turn it into something that it's not and that's not representative of of the religion as a whole and i i accept that the same way that i accept that people who are not super active in the church are not representative of all people who are outside of the church or any religion again for for that matter so i never want to be one of those people who comes across as like looking down at religion or or angry at religion for some of the views that uh some people propagate in the name of religion it's it's a way of life the same way that i view any other way of life and uh, 
because I don't need the Bible to tell me thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not steal and honor thy neighbor doesn't mean that it's not helpful for other people. And I feel like I don't need the, the fear of heaven and hell to like motivate me to try to make good decisions. Not that I'm perfect, but nobody is. I, I feel like if that is there as a, a motivator, a guiding light for people, I, I love it and I encourage it. And I enjoy when I go to church, especially my wife, it's a lot different than the Baptist church that I went to. Mass, we in and out in an hour. Baptist church was. Like, oh, it's oh, grab a I, Snickers, buddy. I'm not, I'm not trying to do grab that. a Snickers. It, it's over when it's over. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know because I go to a yeah. like a non denominational church now, and I grew up in Memphis uh-huh. in a Baptist church. Oh, bro, I can't do that. I, I can't do that. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> I just can't like yes. um like you 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 might mess around and, and miss the kids soccer game <laughs> after church <laughs> at a Baptist church. Yeah, absolutely. Um but uh family. So you talked about your family at church and your uh your wife we said she she's got the three grad degrees, she Harvard Law. Yeah. So like because family structures are different. You know, there's some stay-at-home dads, there's some stay-at-home moms, there are, you know, working parents. So, but your wife is is clearly the smartest person in in the family. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think a, I think a, a lot of men say that because it's the right thing to say and they and they feel like it's a nice thing to say, but not, not like literally. It's not even close and um she is much smarter and probably more talented. She's much more likable and personable than me probably could have been uh, or still can be successful outside of the home. But she decided to to stay home. And I think it's interesting because when I first kind of started to date her and started to fall in love with her, that wasn't what I anticipated. Like I met this woman who was beautiful and really kind and incredibly smart. And in my mind, I was like, oh, well, this is we're going to have like a power couple. She's going to make a lot of money doing this. I'm going to try to make money playing football and maybe some afterwards, but that wasn't what like spoke to her necessarily just because she had those, that potential, it didn't interest her. And it was odd because it worked out well because her desire to stay at home and, and not necessarily uh, chase some professional ambitions, like allowed me the flexibility to like find that fulfillment that I felt like I needed because when, she first had the baby, our first baby, she was um, finishing up law school and then studying for the bar. I had just torn my ACL, so I was home a lot. So I was a stay-at-home dad. And she was kind of like, had the schedule of a working mom and she was not happy and I was not happy because I just was feeling like I needed some some other type of challenge. And we kind of learned at that point that we wanted to be in, in opposite roles and that's where we ended up and it's worked out well so far. Yeah. What about, I mean, see, I love the fact that you guys recognize that because we live in a world, I think where there's an expectation for people like, Oh, like I, I have to go out and work. I have to do uh, this for big, big, because I went to school or this Your Your wife has so many degrees. She's a right. stay at home mom. But for the Foxworth family, the best move is for her to be at home and for you to be out working. Like I applaud you guys for recognizing that. But like, do do anybody do people ever say to you guys, "Oh, well, that's a that's a waste of her degrees from from Harvard and American and all that"? Yeah, I think 
I think um she I don't I mean I don't think we care necessarily about what other people are saying, but I do think that I check in with her a lot because I know that because part of me when I'm traveling for work, part of me wishes I was home. I know that part of her <laughs> when she's at home as much as she wants to be a stay-at-home mom, part of her uh like feels that she has not fulfilled whatever potential she has so like I just try to check in with her often about that and like it's not about what other people are saying necessarily I think it's about her recognizing that there's going to come a point where the kids are going to need her less right now we have nine seven and four year old and so the nine year old doesn't need her nearly as much and we're going to get to a point where none of the kids are going to need her as much and I think that that more than anything is is on her mind and and also wanting to wanting to set an example for our our kids the the girls and the boy that like there's more she has more ability and and women are can be moms and can be other things so I think that that internal struggle is something that we have to be honest with ourselves about because as as perfectly as it fits together and we all work right now like people change and things change and I don't want to ever get in a point where she feels like she can't go out because I need to chase this professional stuff and I don't want to get there where she's like resenting that she has made this decision I don't think we're there yet but that's how my mind works I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing yeah. but it's always looking off in the future for how this could happen but I do recognize when I'm in New York and they're in DC and I'm getting up to go to get up and she like FaceTimes me the kids getting ready to go to school. I recognize something in me that's like, man, I wish I was there. Yeah. And so it just makes me think that the same thing happens to her when I'm about to get on a train to go do or get on a plane to go somewhere that in her, some, uh, I imagine that something's like, man, I wish I had that like little bit of excitement or intellectual stimulation. Yeah. As a father though, I mean, well, well, sorry. Ed was a family man and as a, father like how has being a husband being a father impacted your your life from being an NFL player to you know to seeing the you know all of the social changes that have happened and advocacy as a black man over the last you know five seven seven years like how have all these things played into your life yeah I mean I think being a father does I think make you think about the world you're leaving behind more than you would otherwise. But I, I always felt like a, a responsibility and an obligation to like make some positive impact on society. Even back to like high school and college, there were things that I was involved in because just felt like that was what I needed to do. So having the kids, I think makes it gives me a reason because I want to leave a better world for them. But uh, it, it didn't it wasn't what introduced the idea to me and I do think that one of the best things for me about having kids aside from how aside from how much I love them and how fun it is to be with them and also very challenging sometimes I think it it like moderated my ambition which is probably a healthy yep. thing where whereas there there was a time when it was like any opportunity I wanted and I want to take it and that still that that drive still exists in me but 
now when I, before I can make those decisions, being forced to weigh how it would impact everybody else in my life, I think slowed me down some, which honestly, I think made me happier because when you're on that kind of that treadmill where you're like, all right, what's the next thing? I got to get this. I got to get that. Like there's really no time to enjoy and be happy with anything in your life because you're only looking for another achievement or another dollar or another whatever. But kids really make me think like, ah, do I really need to to uh, spend five days a week out of town? Do I really need to take on this new responsibility? Like, do I really need this extra money and all that stuff? It makes you really, at least for me, it's made me more, I guess, judicious about the way I spend my oh, time. Oh, I 100% agree. Because there have been opportunities that I've had, but it's just like, it, it, it it's like the uh, cost of it. Like you talked about with the negotiations, yeah. what is the cost of yep. this new opportunity, this, this this new life? Because I've had opportunities to coach. I've had opportunities for radio or TV shows in other, in other cities, but I have a blended family and yep. like moving an entire blended, blended family that it don't work like that. Like, so, so like you got to put an <laughs> yeah. extra zero yeah. on to get everybody on board and they still might not get on board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't have uh, a blended family, but I still just recognize that it's the same thing when my agent calls me. It's like, you only put your name in for, for this. And I'm like, yeah, my re immediate reaction is absolutely. Yep. And then I'm like, but how much are they talking? Because <laughs> I got to take the kids out of school. They got to miss their friends. And we live close to family. Like uh, all that ain't worth worth it unless the money is, is right. But yeah, I, I can I can commiserate with you on that all day. What is because yo? So your your dad has his PhD. Your parents they had a company. Mm -hmm. I'd have my parents been married right. thirty eight years. Like it's one of those weird things. So I grew up in in a way that everybody that I lived around did not go to the same schools as I did. Cause I had my, my, my parents found scholarships and ways. I was an excellent student for me to go to private schools and all of this. So I grew up different than the people around me, but then I went to public school at the end and I got that Russell Wilson treatment that, cause I was really good in school, you know, Oh, he's <laughs> yeah. a black guy acting white, this yeah. and that. And I had this huge chip on my shoulder. Right. Like, was that something that you experienced coming from an academic family or yeah. anything like that? Yeah. So my parents, yeah, my parents were not academics. My dad, um, he got his PhD when I was in the league and he uh, grew up in projects in Charlotte and uh, went straight from high school to um, the military and spent 20 years in the military. And my mom's background was from Harlem, but, uh, but I'm um, very similar. And they, they, I think what I saw in them was a, a tremendous work ethic and aspirations for, for more than what the world had given them. But it certainly was not, um, we weren't that different from the people that I went to school with. We, uh, we were in the same ballpark, so I didn't have that same experience necessarily, but I, I do think that the expectations they had for me were, were different in my house than they were yep. in the houses <laughs> of some of my friends. So that, that was the difference. And I do think that the, the, uh, I, I remember like my closest friends in middle school, like sixth, seventh grade, I would hang out with them. I'd do everything with them. And then we'd go back to one of their places after school and they would start smoking. And I 
would either leave or just not smoke and and I don't know why necessarily because like even I don't know because I don't think that's necessarily like makes you a bad person but I just felt like the expectations were different for me and my expectations for myself were different and I did as as much as they didn't see me as different I I saw myself as as different and now as an adult like I as as a kid I was like oh if I smoke weed then I won't be a great athlete and I won't be as smart and I won't do as well as an adult like I recognized that that was like some immature thinking that was kind of this or that but I think it's just a way of life. I, I think that was a, a good way to be at that time and help me get to where I am. But no one of those decisions had I decided to smoke at that time with those kids. I don't know that it would have ruined my life necessarily, but I think just the type of person who would say no had the confidence to say no in that situation. Like that is from my parents yep. and that I think served me well through much of my yeah, life. Yeah, I went through that same uh, the same thing, saying no, all of that, because I felt like I the the, uh-huh. the the standard was different. But as a black man, it's always hard for me to like to when when we have these unrealistic expectations for other black people, and it's frustrating when 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 the names that Russell Wilson has been called because I understand it where. It's like, why does being yeah. black have to be associated with all the negative things in, in the world? Like just being uneducated, not not reading books, not, be, you know, not, you know, um, or dressing in a certain way. It, it speaks to some kind of way, your character or you're lame. And I'm like, no, a black man is supposed to be well-spoken, well-read, thoughtful, like all of these positive things. Like, why do we have to be associated with with? With with keeping it real, keep keeping it one 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 hundred. Why does that mean like negative things? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's that is uh, the experience of minority. Like it's you are you are because there are that is black. All of that is black. Like being uh, educated is black. Being uneducated is black. Being a tough guy is black deciding to avoid danger is black and that's like the black experience is not one thing and i think when you are a minority in a society your uh your identity frankly is boiled down to one lane and if you're outside of that lane then you somehow are not black whereas being white in america like i mean a thousand different things because that's just that is like believed to be like the default. So like you can be anything from there and being black is only being one thing. It's it's tough. I can't say that it doesn't uh, influence me and doesn't make me or didn't influence me and didn't make me want to like fit into those molds. But I, I and I think I did in some ways, some ways naturally, in some ways it was forced and phony, but it's, it's just an interesting dynamic and like, the old double consciousness experience that just doesn't resonate with anyone who, who doesn't have that like minority experience. I imagine that immigrants have that. And I mean, obviously women uh, black and white and otherwise have that too, from like the, the need to be feminine in some ways, which is never really associated with like ambition or achievement. Like I, I think it's something that, 
resonates for a lot of people, honestly. Yeah. Um, the, the, the last thing I want to talk to you about, well, next to last, uh, is friendship. And, and you, and you mentioned <laughs> friendship earlier with that you grew up a, around people, but, but the standards were different. Like how big does, yeah. do you, you know, your friendships from your childhood, from the league yeah. or whatever play into your life now? Yeah, I think that's something that I'm working on as an adult, honestly. I, uh, I'll be 37 at the end of this month. And <laughs> sad to say, one of the things that is important for me to improve on is like friendships. And yes, me too. And it didn't. <laughs> it's like a sad, it's a sad state of affairs to be a grown man. looking. At <laughs> <you>. But <laughs> it's like my, um, my upbringing, like the guys that I grew up around, like they didn't go, most of them didn't go off to college. and then the guys who the places where they went were different places than where I went. So like, it's hard to maintain friends with people when your circumstances are so different and your interests and your priorities have changed so much. So I, it didn't become obvious to me until probably 10 years ago or something like that, where I'm looking at my wife and my wife, both her parents are doctors. She went to private school for most of her schooling and, when she was young and like all of her friends did the same thing. And just like a, and DC is a very black city. So it's like a small group of like elites and like air quotes, like black people. So like all of her friends went to elite colleges and then went on to med school and law school. And they're still very close. The girls that she was close with in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, that wasn't my experience. And so then I, I, the guys who I was friends with in middle school and high school, we went our separate ways. I went off to college. Some of them tried college. Some of them didn't. And then the priorities changed. Then I go to NFL and I'm in Denver. Then I'm in Atlanta. Then I'm back in Baltimore and I'm all over the place. And then I go to business school and I make new friends there. But every situation, I like make some circumstantial kind of friends that are just like purely based on that setting or circumstance. And then I move on and I'm no longer close with them anymore. So I've maintained some of those relationships. I got one friend from college that I still talk to or two friends from college that I still talk to on and off. And one of my um, high school friends who kind of went on a, uh, a college path that I still talk to, but it's just interesting that I don't feel like I have that same, um, those same relationships and, probably shouldn't compare myself to my wife in that way but i, I end up seeing it where she's Dude, like got I a ton of friends whenever she wants to go do something I so many people that she want to i 100 percent agree <laughs> with you i don't get invited to a lot of stuff because i did not yeah i did not nurture <laughs> friendships the way that i felt like that that i should have and granted some some of that was probably good but i i get it where it's where it's like you want to like on, on my vision board, the last two years has been be a better friend, call people, talk. And I, I do the same thing with my family, my extended family a little bit too, where like, we're still cool, but you know, it's more gets to that acquaintance level because you don't know yep. the details <laughs> and have those conversations with them that they have with other people. Yep. Nah, I mean, that's, that's the same with me. My, uh, family and friends and uh yeah it's not all just about the circumstances of my life it's in part about like being hyper focused your whole life and not really taking the time to to do those things and then you look up and you're like man i ain't talked to 
my cousins in five years. Exactly. Dude, <laughs> and, my, uh, yeah, it's 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 not the, good. Uh, the uh, nineteen or the nineteen year old daughter and fourteen year old son, they they always joke they're like, Daddy, you don't you don't have any friends. <laughs> they're like they're like aside from Sammy and Brett, like that's it, buddy. And and I met Brett. Yeah. In 2014, when we were doing a radio show together, and we just so happened to like just be fast friends, and we talked all the time. And Sammy, I met Sammy in college, well, our freshman year when we checked in at Oregon. So like, but I moved around a lot when I was younger, and there weren't cell phones and all that stuff, so that made it harder. But you know, yeah. like you take those friendships for for the season, and you don't necessarily like build. Uh, put put down right. friendship roots. You, you're very, you, you know, you get very right. surface level. So is is, is that something yeah. that I you mean, feel? It's, it's, it's a thing that we all need to work yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I, I guess I assumed until we've had this conversation that I assumed it was a me thing, but maybe it's not. Maybe there are more people like me who've gone the same path who uh, are at this same place. But yeah, I think. I mean, I think I, I know you are absolutely right, and it's something that I still need to work on. I'm not good at, it, but it's 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 embarrassing. <laughs> my wife's like, "You going out to dinner with some of my friends?" Yeah. and I'm like, <laughs> "And and I'm like, who, who can I go I'm to like, dinner who? with?" <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, and I do the same thing. And I, I text two two people if they both busy, and I'm I'm at home. I'm playing some Xbox, watch these kids, exactly. Go to sleep, or or, or if I want. <laughs> Wake me up when or you I get just back. go all by myself. I'll go to the movies all by myself. I'll go to yeah. whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, lot. Yeah, I, I certainly am not above a, a solo <laughs> movie or eating at a bar by myself. I'm not exactly. Too good. I, I have no. I have no problem with it. Sometimes I actually enjoy it, but then I was like, hold up. I need. I need yeah. like some relationships because <laughs> it's good because you are the sum of the five yeah. people that yeah. you spend the most time with. So I'm like, okay, I need to spend some more time with some with some more people who are doing things, even though I'm successful doing things. Maybe if I spent more time with people who were in the same right. field or like-minded people, yeah. maybe some stuff could be a little easier. I could bounce ideas off, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. And be be happier too. <laughs> like that's the thing. It's like I think that you only think like all you need is your family and your work and whatever. But I I feel when I do have those, even though I'm never really looking for them, when I do have those interactions, even if it's with a stranger at the bar or if it's with one of my old friends, I get back together. Like you have a good interaction. That's like not somebody that you're married to and not someone that you're responsible for raising. Like it's a, it's a healthy, <laughs> interesting experience to have that like it, it sh shouldn't like you shouldn't it feel shouldn't bad take about, this much so. work though. I'm working on that in 2020. It shouldn't take this yeah. much work. Sorry. Right, you got to work at things that are important to you. It shouldn't, but we're not good <laughs> at it. So we got to work. At it. All right. The, the uh, last thing before I let you uh, let you go, Fox, is um, food. So I'm a I'm a huge foodie. Like when if you go to a right. city and you're looking for a good bite to eat, text me, call me. I'm that guy. Like, right. And but okay. so food has a I'm not like a big relationship <laughs> in our in our family. We have Sunday dinners, like my grandma did, like all it is. Right. So it's very important to me. How does food play into your life your family all of that um it's not i don't know like my wife is the person who's into food in our family she loves certain types of food but she's picky i personally 
am not that picky. I enjoy seafood more than anything else. But like, she'd get mad at me because I don't believe that any food is really worth waiting for. So like, it's some trendy restaurant that we walk by and like, hey, let's see if we can get a, a table. And they're like, all right, the wait is an hour. I'm like, you nah, gotta throw that Foxworth name around, man. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm not, I'm not there yet, and that's embarrassing because I would do it if I knew it would work. But if you throw it around, and then they're like, who? <laughs> then the whole night is. I'll broke. give you that's, some tips, man. So, it. so we gotta be be friends. It's all in the call ahead. It's in the call ahead. Uh, yeah. Let them know. Uh, excuse me. Can can I can, can I talk to the manager? Then you know you put a little bug bug in the <laughs> manager's ear. Now, granted, not a, not a ton of friends. However, I'm like Jerry Maguire. I'm good. I'm good in the living room. Yeah, that's a, that makes sense. But again, I don't care enough to do that. That's the thing. It's like none of that food is that. That's good why you don't have no friends. That that's why you don't have no friends. Calling ahead because <laughs> you can't appreciate food. You might be right. That's all right though. I'll be good. Me, me, and uh, and these kids gonna figure it out. Ramen noodles. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Hey, Fox man, listen. I appreciate you joining me today on the George Reiser podcast, man. Thanks for sharing so much insight on the CBA, being open and honest and transparent about your faith, your family, your fatherhood, you know, and your friendships or lack thereof. And now, I guess we we have to be be friends to add to to the list and your uh, negative relationship with food maybe we just need to get you some better food <laughs> all right maybe that's maybe that's the deal all right when we're in the same town you got to get me some food and see if you can <laughs> all right we'll we'll do thanks thanks fox right, uh, okay that was a good interview man uh dominic shared so many great things with us so many things that we can take with us and i appreciated his candidness his willing to be open share be vulnerable and transparent about his life the nfl is a big deal and so is this collective bargaining agreement and to have somebody on the podcast today that was on the forefront of that in 2011 and you had people look back on it and say oh this was a bad deal this was a good deal you know to have so many opinions on it and we don't always think about the human element of it that there are 1,700 guys in the NFL, 1,700 around there, obviously, and 300 come in, 300 go out every year. And there are the halves, which are the guys that are making, you know, 15, 18, 20 million dollars a year. And then you have guys all the way down to making league minimum. Guys that have played zero years bouncing from team to team to guys who are, you know, 15, 16, 17 years. So how do you service a membership that looks like that from different socioeconomic backgrounds, from different races, creeds, states, weather, you know, played for different coaches, some coaches adding a 17th game for if you play for the Arizona Cardinals and Cliff Kingsbury is not as difficult as it is if you're playing for Matt Patricia in Detroit, who's going to grind you. All of these things are different. And I thought that, that Dominic pointed it out very, very well, you know, how difficult it is and what some of the, like, in negotiation optics are important. How the NFL and NFLPA position it publicly, 
is very important. I also loved how Dominic was open about race and how to deal with sometimes people who don't agree with us. Because there are some times that, yes, you can change people's hearts and minds by educating them. But sometimes people won't let common sense get in the way of their argument. Like they can't even get to the starting point because they can't see past their own, you know, their own privilege or they can't see past their own bias or they can't see past anything. And that's not just a, a, a one race thing. Like this is just an everybody's people thing where you have to be willing to, you know, step out of yourself and try to see it from somebody else's perspective and not just let what you have either been told, taught or your experience says be the only determining factor when you can hear somebody else's experience. He did a great job of talking about that, talked about politics out of sports and gave us a good book recommendation as well, because politics have always been a part of sports. They're a part of sports with the Mitchell report in baseball. They're a part of it with the steroids. They're a part with free agency, Kurt Flood, Reggie White. I mean, there's always litigation or politics involved in sports. Sometimes people just don't like the issue. One of the things that stood out to me about the interview was where he talked about his barometer for right and wrong and being at peace without faith necessarily, but that his family chose to be in a different direction. And I noticed that because so many times that we have people and that they don't allow people to be on their own journey. You know, because he said, well, you know, what's right for me now may not be right for me later. However, he's able to do something that I think a lot of people have trouble with, which is to set boundaries for themselves or create standards for themselves without being looked at or someone else guiding those principles for them. And I thought that that started at home with his parents. You know, he had... Uh, hardworking parents. He had a military dad. They started a business together. So he had seen these things. And I go to counseling sometimes and the counselor always says that, you know, where people, they're looking for their soulmate, looking for all these things. And they say, he said that healthy people, emotionally healthy people can be married to anybody. And I just found that very interesting because I was like, wow. So if you're not trying to put your expectations, your past, your hurts, your fears on someone else and you can just allow them to be them, then, yeah, you probably can have that with someone else. And another thing I uh, really took from the interview was like the space that he and his wife have allowed each other to be what they wanted to be instead of the expectations that everybody else had for them. So he has an MBA from Harvard, but his wife, Ashley, has three degrees and two of them from Harvard, including a law degree. So imagine how many people were like, oh, you're wasting your life. You wasted all this time when she wanted to go be a stay at home mom because there are stay at home dads and there are stay at home. I mean, you know, blended families, however these things work. And I always look at it and say, Like you have to do what's best for you and your family. 
Like you have to be open, honest, and transparent with your spouse to do those things. And also he pointed out the, the time thing, the time with his family, time with his wife, time with his kids, how valuable that that has become to him. Because I think so many times in the rat race of life that we get to wanting achievement, you know, what's the next thing? How can I grow? How can the business grow? How can, you know, we get to be this power couple, these billionaires, these, you know, multimillionaires, whatever. And we get lost with the relationships. The relationships are more valuable it's like that saying that says people won't remember what you did. They won't remember what you said, but they will remember how you feel. Same is true of your kids. Same is true of everybody. So is getting that next promotion or getting landing that huge job. Is that actually the best thing for your family? Sometimes it is, but sometimes you have to be willing to say no and wait for the thing that is the best thing. I noticed that and I thought that was really good of Dominic to be able to recognize that with him and his family as well. Um, (laughs) One thing that we really shared in common was the friendship angle where he has been able to, you know, has had trouble cultivating friendships and relationships because his life has been different than the people that he grew up with, different than the people that he went to college with, played in the NFL with, but he's built relationships along the way, but they haven't been deep and meaningful. And I think that a lot of people maybe have that because I was a kid, like I said on the podcast, that I moved around a lot and it's hard. And as a man, sometimes it's hard to empathize with people and really, you know, really take stock of what other people are feeling and make it matter even more to you to have those connections and to just not have those surface conversations about the games or about, you know, about any of that other stuff. Get to talking about your fatherhood, get to talking about your family, your friends, your wife, your in a positive way. You know, but also finding good quality people to bounce ideas off of. Loved it, man. He did a great job. And um, yeah, but he might have more friends if he eats better food. (laughs) Thank you guys for listening to the George Reister podcast. Make sure hit us up. GW podcast at unafraidshow.com. Send us a message. Send me a message. Surely we'll get back to you or hit me on Twitter at George Reister. I appreciate your energy. Appreciate your time. Thank you. See you next episode.